I'm Regina Botras and welcome backstage where we talk with theatre makers from actors, directors, writers, theatre heads and beyond about their life in the theatre and how they got to be where they are now. And this podcast features the one and only Wesley Enoch and this first went to air in December 2020. We are talking theatre and I'm so excited to welcome our guest this evening. It's the Artistic Director of Sydney Festival, Wesley Enoch. And he's a playwright, director. He was the Artistic Director of Queensland Theatre Company, Associate Artistic Director of Belvoir Street, was Resident Director of Sydney Theatre Company. goes on, there's so many roles (laughs) that he has played. He has an extensive career in theatre, award-winning playwright. He's done so much, it's hard to know where to start, but I'll just mention a few. Co-wrote Seven Stages of Grieving with Deborah Mailman and directed it. He wrote Black Medea, an adaptation of Euripides, Black Diggers, I Am Eora, Sapphires, Stolen, by Jane Harrison. Look, it goes on and on. He's a spokesman and one of the most influential people, in my opinion, of our times, especially to do with theatre and Indigenous theatre. I feel so honoured to have him talk with me today about his life, these times Sydney Festival. Fingers crossed that all is going well. Welcome to Stages, Wesley. (laughs) Thanks, Regina. That's a big wrap. Thank you. It's it's hard to capture everything. It doesn't nearly do it justice, your life in the theatre justice. But before we talk about the festival this coming season, I want to get a little sense of where you're from. Now, I know you were born at Stradbroke. What was life like for you growing up? Oh, look, we when when we started to go to school, my parents moved off the island. So I was about four or five. So we keep going back for family events. And it's interesting. People ask me, what am I going to do after the festival? And I bought a house on Strabroke Island that I, I'm going to go live in uh, and to be on Strabroke Island a bit more now uh, permanently. And there's a sense of uh, growing up, you know, in a very idyllic kind of fashion you know eating oysters off the rocks lots of kind of seafood and fishing um the the very small community that's there in Dunwich and Gumpy where you're basically related to everyone <laughs> you know, that kind of world where you can't walk down the street without going hey auntie hey uncle you know oh. there's, all of that stuff happens and you know you visit the cemetery and you're related to you know two-thirds of the people buried in the cemetery and there's this kind of sense of not just connection because of my Aboriginal heritage, my Kwandamuka heritage, but also because it's, uh, you know, your DNA is walking around the town with you everywhere you're going. So you feel very connected. Is it still like that now? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. big. It's, and even more so now, um, uh, just shy of 10 years ago, we, we, we got native title for the island and so and, and surrounding waterways and, and a couple of other places. And so there's a sense of, okay, what are we going to do for the future now? You know, this sense of not being trapped by our past, that even though the history was quite um oh quite tricky, um <laughs> that there's a real sense of you know, focus on the on the on the on the future. And in fact the the families have got together and uh, one of the things we're doing is we're going to build a, a new art centre on the island as well to to help support the kind of artistic ambitions. I should say this. Well, actually, um, so my great aunt is Ujuru Nunakle, um, uh Kath Walker. The poet. And yeah. The poet, yeah. And one of her the little stanza, the final stanza from one of her poems, Song of Hope, yeah. says, to our parents' parents, the pain, the sorrow, to our children's children, the bright tomorrow. Uh, sorry, no, the glad tomorrow, the glad tomorrow. 
and there's this real sense of going, yep, that's what we need to do is keep focused on the future. I'm jumping ahead because there was one of the questions I wanted to ask you about was uh, this telling Indigenous stories and and especially for the stage and looking at like trauma in the theatre, is that sort of a hint at, I mean, it must have changed. The voice of Indigenous people on the stage must have changed so much. Where is it now in terms of the stories? Yeah, I think if, if you track the history over the, say, even just 50 years, mm. you know, there was a very much uh, a sense of, um, biographical and autobiographical focus 50 years ago up to about even into the 80s. Um, very much this focus on, you know, having to write onto the public record our story, and often that was a story of hardship. Mm. By the time you get into the 90s and into the early 2000s, there was a strong sense then of moving into um, a more kind of imaginative space where writers could actually use their imagination and their artistic ability and their storytelling abilities to create fictional worlds where things can can happen. And now in, you know, in, let's call it 2020, in this period of time, I'm seeing a lot more the next generation of writer is actually more about not writing onto the public record a history, but in fact um, articulating a preferred future, what our future might be. And I think that's really interesting. You see people like um, Maine Wyatt and um, mm. Nakia Louie, who are not just about, you know, making sense of our past, but into the future. And what I'm interested in is, I think in about 10, maybe 15 years, we will, I think, for the first time in history in terms of theatre, have a complete cohort of people in their teens working mm. in theatre all the way through up into their 80s and 90s. When you see the, the likes of... Um, Jack Charles, who's now in his mid-70s, he'd be one of the oldest practising theatre artists, Aboriginal theatre artists in the country. And then, you know, you get incredible, you know, younger talents that are coming through now. And a lot of the women that we look at, let's say like even Deborah Malman, you know, in 10 years' time, she'll be close close to 60. And you go, wow, what does yeah. that that mean? You know, when you have that l- depth of talent and that depth of um, of uh, career, yeah. and what kind of masterpieces might come out of that? Mm. So, how did you get into theatre then? If you from Stradbroke to <laughs> to now, it's interesting. I mean, I, there's 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 two two stories here. Yeah, one is of the family lineage. So, you know, we talk about Annie Kath or Annie Woodrow in, in, in her presence, where she mixed both politics and art in everything she did through her poetry and through her stance. And in fact, she would have been 100 years old this year um, in this kind of wow. sense of what, what, what her vision was. And in many ways, that's the, true, that's the trajectory that many of us have gone on. Some of us down a political route, some of us down an artistic route. So, you know, the, the well, Stephen Page, who's his mother and my father are cousins. And so this the sense of saying that that kind of Kwandamuka connection to that Nunak or Nugi connection that goes through there so that the Page boys are the kind of artistic route there. Um, my sister is a current um, is the current arts minister in Queensland. Wow. And so she went down the kind of political route. And there's a kind of, you, you see that in everything that happens uh, on the island as well. Arts and politics are kind of connected all the way through. Um, so maybe people could say I was born into it and it was going to always happen. 
But the other thing that happened was as a young teenager, when I was about 13, I was an incredibly angry young man, very angry, um, you know, flights of violence and kind of attacks. And and there was a pathway placed in front of me. One led to juvenile, into the juvenile justice system. And the other one was one of a more constructive pathway, which was in the end, the arts put in front of me. And, and I think that if I'd taken a misstep, if I'd moved in the wrong direction, you'd, I, I would have had a very different story to the one I have now. And many of my cousins often will have that kind of misstep and don't know exactly where they're going. And the arts and, and where I am now is because of that position and my family's support, I think, along the way. So a lot of my early arts experiences were in amateur theatre and youth theatre and school drama and musicals and and all of those things. And it gave me a way of expressing myself like I didn't know I was gay then either so you know there was a whole kind of other other kind of you know the, the hormonal kind of changes <laughs> change going on yeah teenagers go through <laughs> so the sense of going uh, okay what's the pathway and how do I make something of myself was was really uh, vital and and the family was there and so some of these I, I would be you know, at the age of 14 15 coming home at 1 2 o'clock in the morning because I, that's when I could get a lift home from mm. the amateur theatre group's bump out, you know, and, you know, my parents were very, um, well, I don't know, actually, they were very supportive or maybe it was just convenient because they went to bed at 8.30 and got up <laughs> at 4. They didn't want to kind of have to deal with me at 2 o'clock in the morning anyway. So <laughs> there was a bit of that going on. So what was that? Do, do you remember making that decision for arts over anger or arts over, you know, alternative sliding door? Look, I think... Or was there something presented or were you directed that way or was it a personal moment? A bit of everything. I think that that teachers played a very vital role in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so so when I was 13, my, my parents were in their early 30s. You know, they had kids young. And so they were going through their own kind of um, sense of who they were as people as well. And the I remember a school teacher who was the mother of a friend of my sister's who was teaching at the same time. Um, and I really responded badly to male teachers um, just for all the reasons that we know. And <laughs> the the and and he this male teacher said I would I would amount to nothing. I would have nothing would happen in my life. I would basically just, you know, go down this path. And this teacher said, no, 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 there's something else there. And she took me in and I would get to school about 7.30 in the morning and she would be there and she would let me write on the chalkboard and she'd let me kind of, you know, write things and 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 do drawings and um, express myself. And that started me down that kind of particular path that someone showed me a little bit of hope, little, you know, that there were alternatives. Yeah, yeah. Believed in me. and that started a whole thing of so by the time I'm in this a year 12 where mm. I'm I'm topping the school in economics theater <sighs> ancient history um doing very well in maths and biology and things like that I was getting to school at quarter to seven in the morning and doing study group basically setting up a study group and spending every lunch hour on committees and things like that so there was a real sense of being driven 
that that it gave me a purpose in, in many ways. In some ways, I think also anger can be provocative in terms of, you know, people use anger in art and it drives, it gives you drive. Do you think you always had that sort of voice like you uh, to affect change or to... Or was that something you developed because you've taken up such big roles, you know, at the Sydney Festival and you're a spokesperson in so many ways? Was that always there? Look, I think the idea of social justice has always been there, yes. This notion of, you know, I've got a, a non-Aboriginal mother and an Aboriginal father. And there's this sense of, you know, though I may not have actually recognised racism, we experienced it. There were things that were going on. Um, and my life has gone hand in glove with government policy. Every time government policy changed, my life changed. And so by the time I'm going to school, you know, when you think about the 67 referendum and I'm born in 1969, mm. and then by the time, you know, free access to education is occurring for Aboriginal kids in the early 70s, I'm going to primary school. There's a, there's a whole kind of um, series of events when they're wanting to get Aboriginal kids into university I'm ready there. And so there's a whole range of things that have occurred along the way. And and I think that teachers have often been the, the gatekeepers, people who are at the at there ready to go, and they open a door and they say, try this out, try that out. And I remember one teacher basically saying to me, anger is just an energy. It depends where you want to put it. And was, that's been my driving thing ever since, going, okay, if I'm angry, I've got an energy for something, where do I put it? And I, I remember also um, nervousness, the difference between nervousness and um, uh, excitement is just the words you put on it. And so Very there's a real... Similar. Yeah. And so these these physical sensations, you just need to say, I'm going to rename this. Instead of anger, I've got energy for change. And how do I then put that into a constructive frame rather than a destructive one? You're listening to Stages. I'm Regina Bodras and we are talking with Wesley Enoch, the festival director of Sydney Festival. I think, oh, well, this year has probably brought it to light, but teachers have, uh, uh, their role is underestimated. I've often asked the question about, um, what well, to theatre makers at least, uh, if there has been a, a mentor for them. And often it is the teachers that have given that mentorship. Yeah, absolutely. And and I remember one time, though, <laughs> I tell this story publicly, where um, this was at university and a particular lecturer, after my degree course in, in drama and dance, I was going to go into uh, teaching. And they just said, oh, just do, just do honours for a year. Okay. And then at the end of my honours, I went, right, now I can do my Tibet. And, and they literally, in front of me, just ripped up my application form from the for the Diploma of Education and just said, why don't you just go out into the world and experience the world and then come back because it'll be here for you. And it was one of the best pieces of advice because because I'd come from a very poor background in many ways and and I was just looking for security and looking for reliability of income and just mm. not knowing my own kind of uh, opportunities or ambitions, really. I wasn't very articulate about them. They just said they were able to say, just find out, just go. And to be honest, I haven't been unemployed in 30 years. You know, like I've just wow. been able to go from job to job. And and not that education and teaching is is in any way lesser than, but I feel that the contribution I've made as an artist and as an arts leader has been just as valuable 
and my ability now to support teachers you know in what they do is very important to me as well I'll, I'll get a regularly get a phone call or an email from a, a student or a, a teacher saying my kids are studying seven stages of grieving can we yeah. talk to you and I was going, yeah yeah why not um and trying to support them in helping kids is so important and seven stages is one of those um seven stages of grieving yeah the piece that deborah malman and i did together which was done in 1995. is that one of the earliest that you wrote yeah yeah in fact it is the first uh, uh, well look i've done bits well. and pieces before, but, <laughs> but it was it, it, it was the starting of a career in many ways uh and it came from deborah and deborah and i were at university together and you know in many ways we wanted to have a child together we wanted to kind of show manifest our love for each other and this show came from that and it was it set us on a path basically as makers as artists that uh i don't know that that, that piece that still gets performed now like mm. 25 years later it's still being performed and you go and studied and you know kids everywhere in fact this wonderful story of um uh, a, a young man coming up to me and saying, um, oh, I've just studied seven stages of grieving. It's fantastic. And I went, oh, good for you. And, he said, and then he said, and so did my father. And I went, <laughs> wow. what? When he was at school, his father had studied it. It's fantastic. And I just go, that's ridiculous. Mm. How old am I? <laughs> <laughs> well, still alive and kicking, that's for sure. So, we're, so it sounds like there are a few pivotal points there was that teacher not letting you become a teacher and also writing of the seven stages but there have been numerous like how did you come to be the spokesperson the person that you are is it just consistency is it being outspoken and that politics and art hand in glove well I did I remember the the maybe my last professional gig or was it my first pro- anyway it was in 1993 <laughs> when I when I was performing and I was performing in a in a play oh. called One Woman Song, uh, which was the, about the life of Ujuru Nunakal, Marnie Kath. And I remember her saying, you know, she leant across to me once. I was sitting on the floor. She was sitting on a chair. And she leant across to me and she said, you know, one day we'll do it our way and we should do it our way. And I went, oh, that's good. And this was me performing at the Queensland Theatre Company, which, unbeknownst to me, you know, a couple of decades later, I'll be I'll be running it. Yeah. But she said this to me. And I went, oh, yeah, Annie Kath, that's really good. I didn't know what it really meant. Mm-hmm. And over over um, lunch one day, she said, I see you. I know what you are. I see you. And I support you. And I went, oh, giving me permission to be gay, perhaps a whole range of things. Mm-hmm. And three months later, she died. And I kept thinking, every time I, I'm in this situation and I go, someone needs to talk about that. If Annie Kath was here, she would say something or, you know, and you start to realize that when these people, these these giants, these titans, when they pass on, they're actually saying to you, I'm creating a space that someone has to fill. So step into it. And and so as I've become older and and I've become less fearful of the world and more confident in what I could do or, or what's needed, perhaps. I've gone, ah, if I don't speak up, then who will? Because these older older people, these elders are passing away. And so how do you step into that position? And how do you make sure that you're not just responsible for your own ambitions, but your ambitions for a community, for um, a philosophy, for a way of seeing the world, for a culture? And 
you don't do it alone, don't get me wrong, mm. but you do have to stay connected to community and you have to be able to articulate for the future what role you can do in helping shape it. Mm. It's an invitation to take the baton in a way. So let's talk about the future then, Sydney Festival. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> let's, fingers crossed everything goes. So this is really kind of maybe a pinnacle in a way for you. I mean, it's no, it's your last festival, but also it's so homegrown. Yeah. Right? right? And you've been heading that way. There's been each year more and more. Um, and now, in a way, it's, enforced (laughs) well and it's interesting that in march we made the decision back in march 2020 to say let's let's go all australian and that was because it was already in my dna Mm. to tell australian stories to tell first nation stories to help support local artists and companies um and to take our our resources and put them into the hands and the pockets of uh, Australian artists was really important to me. And so we didn't sit back and go, oh, let's just wait and see what we can get away with. Yeah. We just went, actually, instead of spending these hundreds of thousands of dollars on international acts, let's just pivot now. And that was a big thing. I just remember taking all the the international work off my board and going, okay, we still have a festival. Let's do that festival. Mm. And that was great. And that's because Right from the very beginning, for the for the five years I've been at the Sydney Festival, that's kind of what I've been doing. And and many people would criticise me for not having enough international work, or mm. the international work was was not the celebrity international work that they would want. You know, the big big names that cost hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars. I've been focusing very much on First Nations storytelling or storytelling that I think has relevance to Australia and what what's the cultural um, ambitions and conversations we're trying to have. So for us to do the pivot, and that's such an overused word, but it's true, <laughs> it's a good dance word, <laughs> yes. this, this whole idea of pivoting wasn't actually a pivot. It was actually just about clearing away the stuff that we just went, actually, let's just expose, show, uh, and celebrate what is deeply in my values. And in many ways, Sydney Festival 2021 is the cleanest, clearest uh, expression of my values that I, I think I've had at the Sydney Festival. In many ways, I think it, it's one of the, the best Sydney festivals I could put together. Wow. Right. So what are those deep values? <laughs> Community. Yep. Community is big. And um, also the idea of putting your money where your mouth is. You know, if you if you if you you're saying this is important, then show it, demonstrate yeah. it, um, and then also commissioning new work because I think artists, just through osmosis, uh, are pulling in the the atmosphere and the energy of their community, and so if you if you're celebrating an artist and you're commissioning them right now they are doing things that are relevant to society right now mm. as opposed to going back to classics and things and uh, and older works that have been around for four or four or five or ten years actually pulling up things that are now can be really amazing and, and highly risky too which is another yeah. value of mine going you know what is it if it's not risky it's just a little bit stayed and and as a society i think we need festivals to be culturally ambitious so that we are constantly um, reinventing ourselves and pushing ourselves to go further and further and further. Mm. Um, for me, a First Nations storytelling is not just a personal um, 
thing. But I think that this this society, this country, it's unfinished business. And so you need to kind of bring it all up again and say, think about this and think about this. Um, WH Stanner said this, that Australia has a kind of amnesia, a, a kind of forgetfulness, a, a silence around Aboriginal Australia because it's connected to so much trauma. They would rather suppress the trauma than actually deal with it. And as people living in the trauma, it's so much better as a, you know, as a person who went through a lot of trauma as a teenager, mm. so much better to express yourself. And so my art making and my curation of the Sydney Festival in this case is an extension of a very personal thing of whatever trauma is existing in our society, you don't you you, you don't head down a constructive path by ignoring it, by by um yeah by suppressing it in that way it mm. ends up being destructive and you find you find yourself destroying well young people in this case take their own lives and there's a whole sense that the that suppression of trauma creates bad feelings and you have to kind of express them and get them out. Mm. It seems like it is the time in a capital time, T-I-M-E, for, for these stories. There's a hunger for them. What are some of the stories that are being told um, during the festival, some of the shows, some highlights? Yeah. Some highlights. So I think yeah. um, the, the one I keep pushing is uh, the, the wonderful um, Yvonne Goolagong uh, uh, biography piece. Uh, called Sunshine Supergirl, where you just reminded in, in a time when Ash Bowdy is, or, or well, I think she still is, number one in the world of tennis, an Aboriginal woman, you think 50 years ago, uh, Yvonne Goolagong was winning Wimbledon. And the racism that followed her was extraordinary. But the sense of this young woman uh, kind of overcoming all the odds and getting out there, so that's, that's a big work. Mm. Um, we've also got, because we're living in the time of COVID, Yes. We're, we're doing an out, outdoor um, theatre. We're building what's called the Headland yes. at Barangaroo Reserve. And, you know, here's a space that normally holds, I think it's about 7,000 people. We're allowed to have 1,500 in it. And <laughs> you go, wow, fantastic. You know, socially distanced outdoors, um, which is both for psychological reasons, an invitation to in, embrace your community figuratively rather than literally yeah. and to come and see this outdoor stage and on that stage is um an all australian lineup of some extraordinary talent so uh, gravity now the myths doing this big circus performance where they have over 30 acrobats on stage with a choir of 30 so 60 performers doing this brand new australian work and we'll be premiering that one um we've also got uh katie noonan doing the work of Don Walker. We've got Paul Mack um, doing his work about, um, in response to the, the Yes campaign for marriage equality. Uh, we've got Bangara. We've got a huge array of artists there. We've got Paul Capsis and Iota mm. doing um, some work from Megan Washington and a number of other composers called Rapture, talking about murder and mayhem, heaven and hell. And I think that's, you know, if anything, that's what this year is, heaven and hell. Oh, totally. And, and, uh, Another big work that we've got in Parramatta is called um, uh, the HMS Pinafore, yeah. where it's a uh, Kate Gall, fantastic director, who's reimagined this Gilbert and Sullivan classic <laughs> in a way Great. where it's kind of it's cast a, a cast not uh, across genders and allowed mm. all that kind of to happen as well. The kind of um, 
uh, gender and, and, and sexuality to kind of play itself out in this work and how beautifully that's done. I mean, that's just some of the storytelling there. But I'm also really keen that there's family experiences because mm. I think that what we need to do, the antidote to where we're at at the moment is how can we be together safely? And Sydney Festival is prototyping a lot of those scenarios, if you like, to go, we want to be safe, we want to be um, embracing, but we also want to say to people, there's, you, you've you spent a long time apart and, and we've built a kind of mistrust of each other. How can we come into a place, a community place, where we can share, and a festival is a great experience, a, a great um, location for that to occur. Look, COVID for me, um, yes. I think we've had, you know, podcasts and, and, you know, digital meetings and all of that kind of stuff that we've been having. It's great because I think there's also a whole other conversation going on about the environment and how we stay connected. Uh, we don't need to jump on planes or use our cars as much. And I think there's some lessons that we can learn from here as we go forward. Mm, it is. Indeed. Wesley, thank you so much for talking with me. <laughs> Thanks, Regina. You're very welcome. <laughs> You've been listening to Backstage. I'm Regina Botros, and the music for this podcast was produced by Dave Ray and the image by Tuo.